Welcome to the Whose Body Is It podcast. I'm your host, Isabella Melvin. Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Whose Body Is It? Today, where do I even begin? You are going to be listening to a recording that I did with the deprogrammer XX almost one full year ago. Uh, We recorded this episode in October 2020 uh, as part of um, the content for a group series that I was running called Liberal Feminist Anonymous. That group series was for uh, women who wanted to deprogram from the trans agenda and learn more about radical feminism. With that said, um, because this recording was originally intended for a vetted group of women and was shown to a vetted group of women, Deprogrammer um, has gone ahead and blocked out certain images, logos for the sake of uh, privacy And so you will see throughout, if you're watching this episode, you will see that um, certain images are are blocked out. And again, that is to protect the privacy of those who were involved in this collusion, um, who were also, as the deprogrammer outlines, pawns uh, in the trans agenda. If you haven't subscribed to my channel, please make sure to do that. On that note, the deprogrammer and I are both independent content creators. We are not sponsored. Uh, we certainly aren't sponsored by corporations and uh, NGOs uh, that you know trace back to the trans humanist billionaires. And that means we rely on your support to continue making this content, to make more of this content, and to be able to get the things that we need to make our channels happen. Please, please take some time to decompress after you listen or watch this episode specifically. I know most of my content is, uh, let's say, uh, intense. This episode is particularly disturbing. uh, uh, And the following episode will also uh, contain explicit content. So please, please take the time you need to decompress and take care of yourself as you listen to the following uh, information. Hello, the Deprogrammer XX. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and to offer your wealth of knowledge about transgenderism, transgender ideology, extremism, trans activism. I came across your page, uh, I think it was your Instagram page first, which then led me to your YouTube channel, which totally blew my mind. So let's, let's expose what's, what's happening. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm really excited to speak with you and your audience and just kind of share some of the knowledge that I have. I'm just going to kind of get right into it uh, because we're going to be talking a lot and cover a lot of different things. I'm just going to jump right in and kind of give a background so that your audience can understand how I'm coming into all of this and that I do have uh, quite an extensive background as a trans rights activist. So yeah, and, and I am remaining anonymous uh, for now. And that's because I'm no stranger to being canceled and attacked. 
And I've had a lot of people come at me over the years for a lot of different things that I've spoken up about. Um, I've been stalked online and offline. I've been sent like thousands of threats, rape threats, um, threats of mutilation, murder, violence, you know, all kinds of stuff. I've been harassed, physically assaulted. Um, I have had like hundreds of websites smear me online, like white supremacist websites. And yeah, we everybody knows by this point that it's becoming increasingly dangerous to speak out about the truth about our bodies and our lives, whether it has to do with transgenderism or not, you know, it's becoming dangerous to name reality and to say that the emperor wears no clothes. Yet that's exactly what we have to do right now. I need to speak out now about the LGBT trans agenda and I need to talk about it because I've watched so many of my friends and my peers over the years lose themselves to transgender identities. I've seen them mutilate their bodies, become lifelong dependents on the medical and pharmaceutical industries. And I need to speak out about the trans agenda because under male supremacy, we women have been devalued, fragmented and reduced to the point where males are now trying to colonize our physical bodies and biology through the advancement of transgender and transhumanist philosophies and the technologies that spring from these ideologies. So this is a picture of me back in the day with some of my friends from the LGBT center. So the LGBT trans agenda, it's manipulating the minds of, it's exploiting and it's co-opting the energies and well-meaning efforts of young lesbian, gay and bisexual people. And I'm going to share some of my personal experiences with you all as a bisexual woman of color who worked in an LGBT nonprofit about 10 years ago. So this picture is me and some of my coworkers. And when I'm talking about the LGBT trans agenda, uh, what I really mean is the collusion of public, state, corporate, and private interests to make legal and social changes that result in the termination of women's rights, as well as issues of health and safety concerns for children, all under the guise of promoting LGBT and transgender rights. So LGBT trans agenda can't just be dismissed as some right-wing religious talking point. This is a real agenda, and we need to stop being scared to name it. We have to talk about it and we have to understand what it looks like. And that's exactly why Isabella invited me here today to speak about this. So I'm really happy to be able to reach more people with this information. So just to give an example of what I'm talking about when I say the collusion of public, state, corporate, private interests, take a look at this. What we have here is an example of this collusion with the human rights campaign. A lot of people probably recognize their little like square blue logo with the yellow um, equal sign in the middle. The human rights campaign is the largest LB LGBT lobbying group in the United States. And <clears throat> they organized over 147 powerful corporations like Amazon and Nike, Ikea, Dell, Hilton. There's the, you can find the whole list online, but they organized these 147 powerful corporations to sign a letter for trans rights. And when they say trans rights, what they meant is forcing males into female sex segregated spaces or rather forcing females to allow males into our spaces. And the co-founder of the human rights campaign is actually an exposed pedophile. 
and he's collected over a half million dollars for the Obama Biden reelection campaign back in 2012. So you can see here that just this, you've got the nonprofit organization, you have got the political aspect, you've got all these powerful corporations all working together here to promote something. So this is, this is an agenda. So the HRC, this is one of their educational materials that they put out. It's called Safer Sex for Trans Bodies. And in this material, they refer to our vaginas as front holes. They say that for their definition of vagina, that's what they use when they're talking about transgender identified males who have had bottom surgery. So they're surgically created... <laughs> They're surgically created, uh, I don't want to call them genital, genitals because, you know. Um, I've been using the word uh, cavity. Cavity. I mean, that's exactly what it is. If you look at the um, images or video of how the surgery is done. So anyways, yeah, they're referring to that surgically created cavity as a vagina and saying that our vaginas are front holes. So incredibly misogynistic to refer to women's vaginas as holes, you know? So yeah, I was at an LGBTQ resource center. I was the brilliant one that had the idea of adding the Q on the end. <laughs> this was in the early 2010s um, and it's a nonprofit tax exempt organization. The funding for our organization came directly from the AIDS Institute at the New York State Department of Health. So that was uh, one of my responsibilities was to fill out all this information to make like keep track of all the numbers, fill out all these forms to make sure that we could continue to receive funding from New York State. So this is an actual um, funding request that I pulled up from one of my old email accounts. Um, you can see it's all the way back 2012, 2013 at the top there. We had an all-ages drop-in center, a physical space there where we had just tons of transgender propaganda. It kind of seemed to be the focus of everything that we were doing, even though it's an LGBT center, everything was about transgenderism. And at the time, like, I thought that that was the right thing to do, you know? Um, here in this picture, you can see there's like a... Uh, cake in the top right and that's for a 10 year old transgender child <laughs> so a big part of uh what i was doing was visiting local area high schools and helping to set up lgbtq clubs and gay straight alliances actually i was um in my high school actually i think i was in junior high at the time i was part of a group of kids that helped form the first gay straight alliance at our school so Later, when I was doing this for work, I was like, wow, like I've been in it all this time. And here I am trying to help the kids, <laughs> you know, like I really thought that I was helping these kids. Uh, now, obviously, I don't see, see it that way. But yeah, these gay straight alliances are now being referred to as gender sexuality alliances, which I think is interesting. So yeah, uh, it was my responsibility to co-lead these cultural competency trainings, they were called, and we performed them at schools, businesses, churches, really just like any type of organization that would invite us, or we would reach out to them and ask them, try to solicit them to um, 
to take our services and a lot of a lot of different businesses accepted it you know a lot this was very popular at the time about 10 years ago I, again so yeah at these tr- these cultural competency trainings it was kind of like these informational sessions and we would instruct and familiarize the attendants the unsuspecting participants too a lot of them they had no idea what they were getting into when they walked in the door um, but yeah, all of what we were doing was telling them how to think and talk about transgender identities. There was like very, very little focus on the L, the G, and the B. It was all T, like all of it. And because that's what was new to people. Like everybody knew who gay people were, who lesbians were, who, what bisexual people are. Everybody knew that already. What they didn't know was all this language that we have now around transgenderism that we kind of take as like, a lot of people just assume the language that we have for transgenderism, like especially young people, they think it's been there all this time and it's, it really wasn't. It was forced into the mass consciousness, you know, it really was. Um, and I was part of doing that. So this is one of the training materials that we used and it's called the transgender umbrella. And underneath it, you can see that it includes transsexuals, cross-dressers, intersex, performers, and gender benders and androgynes. So we were teaching people that, you know, all of those things were underneath the transgender umbrella. Some more materials that we use, we've got the genderbred person up top and the gender unicorn. That's from the Trans Students Educational Resources. Uh, These are very popular training materials even today, though the gender unicorn has pretty much replaced the genderbred person mostly. A lot of people watching this may have seen these images before. So yeah, I think it's worth noting that the genderbred person that graphic still uses the term biological sex. Whereas when you get into the gender unicorn uh, teaching material, it's been updated to say sex assigned at birth. And that kind of just gives this idea that, you know, sex can change after birth, which obviously is ridiculous. Yeah, we were really focused on indoctrinating the youth with these types of ideas. And I had to make regular reports to the state about how many children we had serviced and what their ages were, what we had taught them. Um, And we always, always had free stuff to give away. These are real photographs from the organization that I worked with. I didn't just pull these up off Google or something. Um, These are real pictures of the types of materials that I used to sit with and try to give out to people, um, including children. And we would always have all these like rainbow colored condoms. I don't have a picture of those, but we always had those with us. Everything was covered in rainbows, as you can see. And, you know, the rainbow is super enticing to children. Kids see it and they associate like good feelings and happiness with it, which they should. But now it's being associated with all this other stuff. Um, Really deceptive. So a lot of the materials that we used for educational purposes were from uh, this nonprofit called GLAD. And it used to stand for Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. 
But in 2013, they actually stated that GLAD doesn't stand for anything at all. <laughs> and they did that, of course, in order to be more inclusive to transgender identities. So interesting what gets erased there. Um, you know, just the constant exposure that I had to these ideas and, and also the repetition of me repeating them as the trainer, as the teacher, really solidified this like indoctrination in my own mind, you know, and like made me just like totally, it just completely formulated my thoughts about transgenderism and trans rights ideology before I had any of my own, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like part of the job um, also included lobbying to the state. So this is more um, evidence for people to see like how this is an agenda because we were being paid by the state. Our funding was coming from the state to push this, uh, push transgender propaganda. And as part of my job, I was also directly going to the state to lobby them to say, hey, we need more rights for transgender people. So I went to the state capitol in New York, part of a crew of people to lobby for something called GENDA. It's the Gender Expression Non-Discrimination Act, it's called. And it actually passed back in 2019. And essentially it makes it so that I could be charged with a hate crime now if I was to challenge the presence of a male in a female bathroom. And obviously at the time when I was doing all this, I had no idea that that's what I was really lobbying for. Like I, I'm, I'm horrified when I look back on it. And now I think about, um, I can't remember obviously who they were, but the politicians that I was in the room with, I just remember, no, sorry, not the politicians themselves, their representatives. I remember some of the looks on their faces when we were giving them our arguments. And I'm just like, now I understand why some of those people were so confused by what we were saying, because it literally made no sense. <laughs> this Can mechanism I that I've been describing, it, it's it, like about the transgender LGBT agenda. It's not just with transgenderism, you know, it's not just with the LGBT. This is a mechanism that can be observed in all kinds of other social justice movements, which I've also been involved in a lot of other activist stuff. So I first came to understand how the nonprofit industrial complex operates in the context of my own involvement in like eco activism and so called anti racist organizing. And the nonprofit industrial complex, it's a system of relationships between foundations, social justice nonprofits, the state, corporate, and private interests. And I get that definition from um, this book called The Revolution Will Not Be Funded Beyond the Nonprofit Industrial Complex. It's edited by the Insight Women, Women of Color Against Violence Collective. Unfortunately, they do support transgenderism at this time, but there's a lot of really good uh, information in that book. And that's how I came to understand the nonprofit industrial complex. Another thing that we did at my work was distribute GLSEN safe space kits and stickers. And GLSEN is the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network. Um, maybe you've seen some of these images as well. We would, after we would do the cultural competency trainings I was talking about before, we would distribute these like stickers and badges to the businesses. 
um, or doctor's office or whoever it was, we would give them the, this like packet of, uh, you know, propaganda with rainbows and stickers and stuff. And they would paste it all over the front of their building and in the bathrooms and stuff like that to show that their business was a safe space. It's a safe space for LGBT people. So something interesting about Glisten, I want to dive in more about like this, the nonprofit industrial complex aspect of all of this and kind of just illustrate that more for people, because I think it's, it's probably going to be a new term for a lot of people or a new idea. So let's kind of tease it out a little bit more um, using Glisten as an example. It's because it's a really good example. So Glisten is funded by the Arcus Foundation. And the Arcus Foundation was created by a billionaire philanthropist named Joe Stryker. And you got to watch out for those billionaire philanthropist types. A lot of those going around right now trying to convince us of all types of things. And Arcus is the largest grant grant maker for LGBTQ specific nonprofits worldwide. So for example, the organization that I worked at or any organization like that, you could um, try to get a grant and receive money for the work that you're doing from the Arcus Foundation. This is what they do. So the Arcus Foundation has also recently been talking about their intent to increase targeting towards racial and age groups, as they call it, and it's part of what they refer to as their intersectional work. Everybody loves that term that they've co-opted from Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, I find it really interesting that Janet Mock, who's a transgender identified male celebrity, is a sitting board member on the Arcus Foundation. So it kind of shows like the revolving door between all of this and that they use celebrities and people that have a lot of sway over young people and the, and the masses in general to promote these, uh, to promote agendas and who better, you know, than, than Janet Mock, a trans identified man to champion this cause. Right. So the Stryker foundation, where does their money come from? Well, Joe Stryker, his grandfather was the founder of Stryker Corp, which uh, sold $13.6 billion in medical equipment in 2018 alone. It's a Fortune 500 medical technology corporation, and it runs out of Kalamazoo, Michigan. In uh, Stryker's lifetime, he's used over $585 million of his own money to push his ideas out into the world and more is coming every day. You know, there, and this is just one foundation. There's so many foundations like this, but I, I really want to encourage everybody to check out this piece of work from Jennifer Bielek, where she kind of really goes into some of the other nonprofits that are involved in uh, reshaping what we think of about transgenderism. So definitely check that out. So yeah, just to kind of circle back around what I, when I'm talking about LGBT trans agenda, because I say this a lot in my work, I say LGBT agenda, trans agenda, and people get offended very easily by that. And that's too bad because honestly, I don't care about offending people anymore because there's so much at stake right now. We really need to be talking about all these things. So, but just to, just to clarify, while I have the opportunity when I say LGBT trans agenda, 
I'm referring to all these different ways that the money and power of the state and massive corporations and private foundations work together to attempt to eviscerate the legal and social protections of females while directly attacking children with propaganda to indoctrinate them to the misogynistic biology-hating ideologies of transgenderism. Thank you so much. Wow. Oh my gosh. I so much to take in. <laughs> it, it it is. And it's so there's there's so much. And I know women watching this are gonna be like, holy shit. And and I'll say that that I've been like in this for maybe two years, and I really only think I I'm at the surface, you know, still. And so like I love that 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 the women will be able to come back to this and like pause and and research, you know, as much or as you know, little as they as they want. But you mentioned the reporting to the state as part of your due diligence in in kind of setting up the alliances at the schools. Can you can you talk a little bit about what what that was when you say reporting? Like how many, do you mean how many children were in attendance? Yes. So if we um, went into a school, we would have to do like a, um, like a gay straight alliance meeting or just whatever term they were using for their meetings there. If we went there to help facilitate those meetings, which is generally what we were doing when we were in the schools, we would count how many students were there we would record their ages. We would record um, not their personal information, but kind of like demographic information. Interestingly enough, they wanted to know the sexes. <laughs> I don't know if they still do that anymore mm. because that's transphobic. Oh um, my gosh. That's information they still want to know. But anyways, we would record all that information. And then we would also say what training materials we had used, where they came from. Um, that type of information. And if we weren't reaching enough kids, then we wouldn't get the, you know, the full funding that we were looking for. So the only way to get full funding for all of your projects is to make sure that you are reaching, uh, you know, a certain amount of kids. Of course, I don't remember all the details of what the requirements were back then, but. Okay, that, that makes sense. Thank you for for sharing that okay so they were interested in the sex that's of course yeah yeah the, the, the irony of of all of this um and then you mentioned oh my gosh what was it genda or glenda was oh, it genda genda yes so you were standing there advocating with your with the fellow activists saying like yes yes this should be a hate crime to report uh someone of the opposite sex in, in the bathroom. And wow, yes. that's incredible. Yeah. And I actually remember that I, because I went and did that and I saw some other people that I knew there outside of work that are transgender identified males, like in activist spaces, because I was there lobbying, they were like, oh, wow, like, she's so great. Like, she's a wonderful trans ally and I actually got like um some positive reinforcement from doing that even right. though like I've never really been about like um I've never really been that into political stuff in terms of like in, in that way anyway 
like lobbying the state or anything like that but I did do it because I had to for work and I did get positive um you know feedback and reinforcement from transgender people Uh, well at least it speaks to the power of you getting shit done you know it's like okay well if you can do that you can also you know change other things you know it's like well at least if anything like looking for like a desperate silver lining and that like you were able to do something really really significant um that affects you know on like a legislative level um honestly if i hadn't um been involved in all of this so deeply if i hadn't done all this then maybe i wouldn't be at the point that i am now Uh, the point of like awareness and understanding and you know not being well too afraid to speak up about this stuff um because honestly i think a big thing that stops people from speaking out is they don't want to be targeted or labeled and i completely understand that because that's what's happened to me right i don't even think so many women are even there i think i think like just like losing the friend or or losing the coworker or losing that one client. Like, I, I don't think most women can fathom what you've experienced, the kind of um, harassment. And even the word, even the word canceled doesn't really paint an accurate picture of what women are going through with rape threats, death threats, right. doxing, right? right. It's, it's like almost become a, a euphemism. Like it's, it just, it just touches the surface, not a euphemism, but it, it only touches the surface of actually what's happening. Yeah. And like, I will get into it somewhat as we talk more, but there's a lot of it that I don't feel comfortable talking about, but you know, the, the type of pushback and harassment that I've received just, it totally changed my life. You know, the life that I used to have, it doesn't exist anymore at all. I'm still trying to yeah, I'm just, I'm just still trying to figure out how to even be a person in this world anymore because I was someone before and I had a whole life built up, up around who I was and all of the work that I had done. So I've done a lot of organizing work outside of tra- anything to do with transgenderism. And um, yeah, I just, I can't even talk about that work that I've done really openly because the more I speak about specific things that I've done, the more it reveals exactly who I am. But anyways, yeah, I, I do want to talk a little bit about my background in leftist politics um, or organizing spaces, really. Like there was a period of time that I was so deeply programmed to certain patterns of thinking that were reinforced by my friends and community that I would just completely dismiss information, ideas, people, research, books, like whatever it was, anything that challenged the viewpoints that I had learned um, were acceptable, not only acceptable, but were required of me to continue to participate in those spaces. So I didn't realize it at the time, but I was really programming myself and helping to program others into like cognitive dissonance and deep, deep denial. Even though, you know, I had been a longtime critic of a lot of ideas and practices that existed in a lot of leftist organizing spaces that I was part of. Um, Like I'd been taking, I had been undertaking personal projects, trying to expose money behind large nonprofits that seemed to be kind of like dominating and dictating the thought patterns and behaviors of the broader communities that I was a part of. 
So of course, trying to expose those things made me a big target, not just to other activist people who wanted to protect their own cognitive dissonance, but to certain people within these big organizations who were wielding their power, influence, and money to try to like exclude me from various spaces and events and just try to like give me a bad name and make it so that people wouldn't want to um, work with me or wouldn't want to listen to what I had to say because I had critiques of what they were doing. And I definitely wasn't the only one who was targeted in this way. Um, other friends of mine were publicly attacked too, mostly women and mostly women of color. Okay. It was mostly women of color being attacked for speaking about these things. Um, but yeah, I, I had a lot of uh, suspicions about the money and the co-optation that was going on of our organizing spaces. And I was shocked that people didn't really want to talk about it because I actually, I did a lot of work exposing this kind of stuff and yeah, I got a lot of like pats on the backs and, oh yeah, you're so, wow, great job. Da, da, da. But ultimately my critiques and the research that I dug up and everything was kind of, you know, dismissed because clearly nobody cared about it or we wouldn't be where we're at today. Cause I made sure that a lot of people knew about this stuff. Like I, I made it my mission. I was loud and like, <laughs> you know, like uh, determined to make sure that people understood how these movement spaces were being influenced by these like private corporate and state powers and people just didn't want to know. And that's so obvious um, now that people still don't want to know. <laughs> people that are in those communities don't want to know. It's mostly people who are outside of them um, or people who used to be part of them that are interested in talking about this. So one thing that I really started to clock was this pattern of behavior I found really, really disturbing where male rapists and pedophiles were being granted like total impunity to continue operating within these organizing spaces and often in leadership positions, even when like there was instances where I had like full documentation of some men, like some men trying to solicit sex with minors and I had images of the conversations and everything and I was still being attacked as like this horrible awful woman that needs to shut up and go away and she's ruining everything and she's so divisive and she's ruining our movement <laughs> these men they were being granted impunity and obviously I was not having that for a second and I started to make a lot of enemies when I started to vocally name these men and demand explanations from people and groups that continued to work with them. So, you know, over the years, I became the target of several smear campaigns. This was not just from like groups. It was also specific individuals that didn't like me anymore. Um, mostly like people that I had once been friends with and supported who I, who I had a difference of opinion of or critiqued something that they did or said, and they decide to like make it their mission to put me down. Um, and you know, it was like, I had a few people who, you know, I didn't obey and they really tried to get me to shut the F up, you know? And when, I, yeah, I said, obey, because I'm serious. They wanted me to obey them. You know, I was targeted several times by people who tried to force me under their control. And um, sometimes that was through the weaponization of identity politics. 
and like these cult-like tactics. And I do want to say that a lot of these um, maneuvers that were used against me and other like unruly bad women um, and these like super niche activist spaces years ago, now I see them being used against women all the time. Like any woman who dares to speak out or give her opinion on anything, these tactics are being used, you know? Once I started to get pushback about that, I kind of started to see these big major blind spots in the analysis of power that people were operating from. All the talk that had been around about following the money and, um, you know, identifying shared oppressors and all this, this type of idea that was popular during Occupy Wall Street, which I was also very involved in that way back in the day. But that all that had just kind of gone out the window, you know, and the focus had totally shift over to performative allyship and woke aesthetics and just like a culture where people were using their various identity markers as like a point system creating a new hierarchy of oppressions. And I was totally guilty of participating in this. So uh, depending on where you found yourself within this hierarchy of oppressions that determine whether you were allowed to speak, you know, it said what you were allowed to say, when you were allowed to say it, how you were allowed to say it, who you were allowed to say it to. It was just so limiting. I was involved in like a lot of direct action campaigns specifically around uh, intervening on like large scaled uh, environmentally de degrading in infrastructure projects, fracking and tar sands and stuff like that. And there were indigenous women in those spaces trying to explain how violence on the land corresponds to violence against women and specifically indigenous women since a lot of these destructive large-scale infrastructure infrastructure projects are intentionally situated on indigenous reservations. So taking their lead, I emphasize this in all of my work, this understanding, and I really tried to make visible the issue of missing and murdered indigenous women in the US and Canada. But really that's, that's a major issue all over the world. But yeah, as I started to focus more on this and like I was learning and reading more about the prevalence of human trafficking and just what a massive profitable industry it was. And I've always been interested in like looking up at like the money behind things and like, how is this industry working? You know, so when I started to research that type of stuff and share that information in my spheres of influence, I almost immediately started to be criticized for sharing information from SWERFs the sex worker, exclusionary, radical feminists, and TERFs. And like even like the work of indigenous feminists that had documented all this stuff about trafficking of indigenous women, like even their work was being put down as, you know, swerfs. They're swerfs. They shouldn't be listened to. We should only listen to indigenous women that like promote, promote and like embrace sex work and transgenderism. Because, like, I'm just going to be honest, if you don't support transgenderism and sex work, and if you don't turn a blind eye to child sexualization and leftist organizing spaces, you are not going to be accepted. You're just not accepted. You're going to be branded and you're going to be shunned or attacked. So, 
you know, when I finally broke out of all those spells, it was like my body and my mind just like remembered instantly how good it felt to allow myself to just think whatever I want to without being worried. Like I was policing myself in my own head all the time about what I could say and even what I should think about. You know, I was always telling myself like, oh, well, you know, maybe that's just your internalized trans misogyny speaking or something bullshit like that, you know, just silencing myself, silencing all those, you know, the intuition in me that was screaming, like, there's something not right here. And I was just always pushing that down, pushing it down, pushing it down, trying to be a better ally. But yeah, when I got out of that, I was just like desperate for information that challenged all these ideas that I internalized. And I spent all this time reading stories from other women that had peaked trans um, and like just researching the history of transgenderism and just like trying to look at the money and mechanisms behind how this became such a mainstream issue. Because when I first was supporting transgenderism, I never ever thought that this issue was going to receive so much widespread mainstream status, you know, like now it's everywhere. And back then I thought I was like fighting for the underdog. And I just, I did not understand that trans rights were being used to systematically challenge and dismantle the sex-based protections of females. I just didn't get it. And like that really speaks to the social engineering behind this so-called movement and I, like, I remember when I was younger and I, I fully believed that the fight for gay marriage, like wouldn't, wouldn't happen in my lifetime. Like, I didn't think that gay marriage was going to be accepted across the United States in my lifetime. I really didn't back then because things were so much different and we didn't have all of this propaganda that we have now, but you know, like 2015, it was legal in all 50 States. And it's important to remember it. So that was only a few short years ago. Like that was five years ago. And Biden, and I'm just, I don't want to go too much into the partisan politics, but you know, that was just a few years ago that this guy was speaking against gay marriage. And now I see this character on TV, like talking about how eight-year-old children can be transgender. And that's, that's being worked into their campaign materials. Do you think, this is a question that's been on my mind, I, I, I've talked about this with Jennifer Lal, that perhaps the legalization of gay marriage was like a stepping stone to make commercial surrogacy more digestible to the population, you know, because when I asked her when she first saw like transgenderism on the map, her response was, well, the first thing was to say, you know, men can have babies, referring to gay men adopting children, mm-hmm. or a man who, who was married to a woman has a biological child to the woman, and then they get divorced, and he has a new partner, right? He's still a gay dad, but by, mm-hmm. by that definition. And so I wonder, like, in this celebration for the legalization of gay marriage, you know, which I'm for, I also wonder if if it put us in a worse position to protect women. Like, and I'm talking about mostly men. I'm not, I'm not really talking about lesbians being able to get married because I don't really see, obviously I don't see lesbians as, as a threat to anyone. But yeah, this, this first kind of legalizing marriage to then say men can give birth or men can buy women, uh, 
I rent them to grow their babies. And then now men are women. Mm-hmm. They're not just renting them, borrowing them. They, they are them and they're going to be able to have, you know, uterus transplants and, you know, uh, take, you know, chemicals to then squeeze little drops of milk out of their mammary. So disgusting. Yeah. So I'm I'm wondering, what do you, what do you think about that? I mean, I think that what your assessment is really spot on. I do think that it has been used to kind of open up people's minds to the idea of men having children. Like surrogacy specifically has been used to open up the public's minds to the idea that men can have children without a woman being present. And with surrogacy, it's like, they're just using her body as a vessel. And it's like, well, obviously that's what like male supremacist ideologies have been promoting that idea for thousands of years now through, you know, state and state doctrines and religious doctrines. So I think that's, yeah, that's definitely connected. I also think, you know, that, I have seen lesbian women be used in this agenda as well because there is so much, um, I don't want to get too much into this topic because it's not really something that I feel proficient speaking about, but I do have some proximity to this since uh, my partner was born to two lesbian mothers and they use IVF, uh, in vitro fertilization. And so this is like something that we talk about a lot. And uh, like, I do think that lesbian women are seen as less of a threat to the general public. So for good reason, (laughs) but the, the idea of like, um, women having children through these like unnatural means, with medical intervention like that's kind of softened people up to the idea of surrogacy as well and just like different IVF technologies yeah yeah the kind of the focusing on the like poor not 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 monetarily poor but just like Mm -hmm. sad infertile woman Mm -hmm. who just struggled with infertility and so then the, like the money shot is her handing, you know, the surrogate handing her the baby and they're crying. Like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, with, with, with IVF, with lesbian couples with IVF, that's slightly different because there's, there's no potential for conception without, unless they're doing like a turkey baster at home insemination. But yeah, that's a great, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. That that's softened. Yeah. And it, and it, and there's something, you know, just so eerie about, Right, which is kind of like everything that happens within liberal feminism is our participation in our own objectification mm-hmm. and subjugation, which, you know, what you described, like seeking out third party reproduction, using experimental medications, you know, could fall under that, that umbrella too. It's like, you know, it's, oh God, it's really, yeah, IVF is a, is a tricky one. It's all just kind of like moving us towards a future where women and our bodies and ourselves are just like completely removed from the actual like reproduction. But we're still being used as like um, something that can be like taken and harvested from, whether it's like our eggs or like whatever it is that they're trying, you know, like they still 
want to take and use us. They want to use our bodies and the like powers that our bodies have while disposing of us. And ultimately I do think that that is the goal behind transgenderism and transhumanism. I do think that is the ultimate goal here is to completely um, bring women of the world under control to bring them to bring us under control and our bodies under control so that they can create a future where we don't have a say about anything but but men can continue to populate the earth on their own terms the way that they want to so it's a really slippery slope i guess i want to talk a little bit about like this idea of lateral violence that's something that's going on in in the spaces that i find myself in online <laughs> now which is pretty much that online is like the place where i am allowed to speak <laughs> in the world now it's like the only place where i'm really allowed to speak and anyone will listen to me now with all the responses to the pandemic or whatever you know, it's, this is, it's, everybody kind of feels like that, you know, that we can only speak online. And what does that mean now that the online world and social media has kind of become the new social square, like the new like public square. And we women don't have a place in it to speak about what's happening to ourselves and our bodies and the laws um, that are supposed to be there to protect us. Uh, and girls too. You know, the people that find value in the information that I kind of like gather and aggregate and present through my videos or the other digital art that I put on Instagram and stuff, like those people that find value in my work, they come from a wide range of viewpoints and backgrounds. And I can relate to all of them on some level and really respect what I learn and gain from interactions with people who come from different backgrounds from me, you know, whether it's physically, like politically or religious or, you know, cultural, whatever. Like I find a lot of value in taking in information from quote unquote all sides, kind of like comparing it, contrasting it and just distilling it through my own filters and, you know, I like to keep what makes sense to me and just kind of file away the rest in my mind to kind of help build an understanding of how other people think and operate, you know, that way I can try to find new ways to reach them, not just reach them with what I want to tell them, but keep the lines of communication open, you know, because these days I'm really all about that. I'm just trying to find ways to build common understandings and cooperation because in the past, I wasn't like that at all. You know, I, I demanded like such purity from people. It was like ridiculous. Like, and I just know that that's not a good way to operate anymore. Uh, for me personally, you know, I can't be demanding political purity from people because also I don't agree with anybody on everything. You know, there's not one person I agree with on everything. And It's just, I don't expect the people that I engage with, whether it's like me learning from them or me trying to teach them something, like I don't expect those people to share all of my beliefs before I'll allow myself to engage with them. You know, it's a totally ridiculous expectation. And I've been wrong about a lot of things, just like everything I just showed, all 
my past, like teaching people all this stuff. Like I was wrong about all of those things. And, and because I know that I was wrong about that and cause I have a different understanding now I'm, I'm open to changing other understandings that I have when I'm presented with, you know, new information and perspectives of all the people that are following me. There's just not one single person that I agree with about everything, but I can find something to agree on, you know, and, and I can also find something to disagree with about with these people as well. And I think that that's okay. Like, that's fine. You know, I'm, I'm going to share what I have to say. And those people who can hear it and want to hear it and engage with it are going to. And no matter what, there's always going to be people that want me to shut up, you know, and be quiet, you know, just like go away never open your big fat mouth again. You know, like I know I've gotten that message loud and clear, you know, that's fine. But I just really try to stay away from any type of like lateral violence when it occurs because it seems to be often and when I'm saying lateral violence, because I know it's not a term that a lot of people use, but I, I find it particularly helpful because it's basically, it's like misplaced blame or aggression or violence that gets put onto your peers versus like your shared adversaries. So obviously there's a lot of this that goes on amongst women and it's like, it's what we've been taught to do. We've had this behavior programmed into us for thousands of years and, and it shows up in all kinds of ways. It's like, it's a cycle of abuse. It's rooted in trauma and oppression. And, and it definitely manifests itself in these transcritical spaces, you know, and women are putting down other women for sharing ideas that they don't agree with. And I get put down by a lot of other women, women that I would think might be my allies or something, or that I would have a lot at least to agree with and build on those ideas. I get like attacked and put down by a lot of those women because I have a lot of beliefs that they think are, you know, crazy or conspiracies or too out there and they don't want to hear what I have to say. And I've had a lot of, you know, instances of people like kind of coming to me saying like, oh, these people are talking about you in this private chat or on this Facebook page or whatever. And they're like sharing screenshots of stuff you've said and saying that you're crazy and da, 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 and, you know. It's really, it's sad that that happens, but I don't know. I just think we have to keep trying to exposing the roots of, of this agenda, you know, and the extent of it. There's this analogy that I always think of, of like punching up instead of punching down. So like, for example, when I see stuff that people say online that I disagree with, which is literally all the time. <laughs> I see stuff I don't agree with all the time. And instead of like going on to that woman's like page and commenting like, oh yeah, well, da, da, da. like I just don't do that kind of stuff anymore because I think a lot of times it gets interpreted as being like aggressive or like an attack on people, even though it's not. And I reject that it's like, I don't like that it's considered that, but I recognize that that's what happens a lot of times, especially online. It's kind of like acceptable online to be mean to other people, especially if you don't know them, and especially like someone like me that doesn't share like pictures of myself or like my face and stuff. Like people think it's okay to just treat me like a piece of shit, really. Um, but I, I don't know. I just, I think that we should really be looking up at 
and I don't mean up like physically up, but I mean up in terms of like the power structures of who really is wielding and holding all this power and pushing these agendas, you know, like who's doing this? I hear that. And obviously I, I felt it too. And, and also have done that, you know, been, you know, been really critical on other people's pages about other posts. And on the one hand, I'm interested in exposing certain organizations in their participation in indoctrination. Like I absolutely think there's power in holding like my doula training, for example, accountable for what they're doing. Um, And then holding, you know, I got kicked out of a fertility awareness teacher training program for being gender critical. Like I want women to know that this training, that this organization in the first module of the education is the gender red person. Like that's something that women should be warned because not only did I get kicked out, another woman was given an ultimatum. Mm -hmm. And then a third woman who I've become close with is now one year into the program and has um, decided to leave, you know? So it's like how much time and energy and torment and just could it have saved? Mm -hmm to just know what you were getting into and right. Yeah. So, so I, I hear what you're saying and it's, a, it's definitely a tricky balance. I, I I'm like, try, I'm figuring it out now. Why aren't we talking about Joe Stryker? You know, Joe Stryker right. sitting there like, Oh wow. Yeah. All these women are just fighting each other. For some of the women in the group who are watching this, you know, I think we, we've been talking a lot about like strategies of how to approach people about this topic and what works and what doesn't. And like, the truth is that, there's going to be rejection, there's going to be attacks, whether they're verbal, virtual, in person, physical, like, you know, there's a spectrum of what what the consequences are, and they're very real. But avoiding rejection, avoiding um, critique is is impossible when you're talking about something, any topic that you're talking about passionately is going to receive that. This is one that is so polarizing. And probably I mean, other than like COVID and vaccines, I, I don't know a race. I would say this is probably, you know, top four, top three. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, personally, I think that it's all of the things that you just mentioned are interconnected. Don't really want to get into that now, but I do think that they are demonstrably connected. But yeah, I think there's so much divide and conquer going on right now. It's obvious. And I just feel like ultimately I have a lot more in common with any woman, regardless Mm -hmm. of her like political, religious or beliefs, like any woman that questions the trans agenda. I have more in common with those women than I have in common with the classes of people that own us (laughs) and control us, you know, through increasingly technocratic means. And I, I choose to form my weapons against those, you know, the controllers and to try to understand what they're doing and make visible what they're doing and just put the pieces together and connect the dots. Like, I think that that is so much more important way to spend my time and energy than to just sit on, you know, if I was just like on my phone, like on Instagram, like tech messaging back and forth, like um, commenting and arguing about every little detail with every person that I disagree on. Cause if I did that, I would just literally never accomplish anything at all. Like I would just be exasperated and exhausted before right. I even had time to like try to lift up the curtain and peek behind it and see what's making this whole machine tick. 
that's really yeah. what we need to be doing is like looking under the covers of like what is going on here like why are these things happening yeah and i think a lot of women i mean i'm on i'm on the same page with you with the interconnectedness and the individuals who are responsible um but i think some women do have an aversion to like you know like the elite pulling the strings kind of narrative has gotten such a bad reputation but i think it is really helpful for women to know that these are real alive men who have houses they have addresses you know that that they are the leaders of these um kind of trans agenda ngos and there are so many of them and like and why has that gotten a bad rap we have to remember it's because of propaganda that's what all mainstream media des is like designed to silence critique right? And, and, and like silence any real discussion of the people that are putting that are keeping us oppressed. That's what it exists for. They churn out propaganda constantly to put down anybody that steps out of line and questions the mainstream narrative or the official like government explanation of anything. I mean, that's the history of the term conspiracy theorist. It was literally designed to um, just like dismiss people, make people look crazy. Anyone that was questioning, uh, it was like originally around the JFK assassination, but it's obviously it's applied to everybody. And I mean, you can't watch anything in mainstream media, especially news media, without getting exposed to this propaganda of like these crazy people, that crazy people, this conspiracy. And yeah, there's a lot of bullshit out there to pick through. Like, I get that. It, we are told we've never been so saturated with like conspiracy stuff ever. And that's on purpose as well. That is on purpose. It's all by design to make it even harder for us to uncover what's really going on. So yeah, we got to wade through like a lot of really like messy stuff and ideas. And we just, we have to, we have to, or we're never going to understand what's going on. You know, we could just sit here and let the people that control everything and control the media keep telling the story and they'll be happy to do that. Yeah. And that there is a, like what you said about, you know, conversing with other women who are perhaps religious or mm -hmm. conservative or whatever. And it's not a necessity, like it's, it's not necessarily necessary. Hmm. Well, you might disagree, but you know, I, I had a, I had a conversation with the mother of a trans identified daughter mm -hmm. and we, we aligned on almost everything, but then vaccines came up, you know, and we, we differ, you know, I'm for medical freedom. She thinks vaccines, you know, kind of like saved mm -hmm. humanity. And we acknowledge that well, we are in disagreement. Itself. That's a, that's a propagandist talking point in itself. Yeah. No, I mean, I know that I feel that way, but, but we disagreed and, you know, we have a common goal, you know, to stop the transing of children. Mm -hmm. I've really opened, I, I actually saw how narrow-minded I was um, in my aversion to the wrong kind of feminism mm -hmm. when I stepped into another feminism <laughs> and I was like, wow, actually it's this big, like actually this whole world of all these different feminisms that exist. And like, I lament the time where we could have a debate, like we could be debating liberal versus radical feminism without talking about the trans stuff, you know, like having a debate on like whether sex workers should, um, unionized or if we should 
prosecute the buyers. Like, that's an interesting conversation that can't happen anymore because of, as you you know outlined so wonderfully, this that the T has dominated everything. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of thoughts about female transgenderism. I think I was telling you this earlier, uh, a lot of the work that I do exposes kind of like the male transgenderism and like what's going on there, what's the problem there. And I've just, I've done a lot of that, but I think at this point it's pretty obvious for any woman that's in this group or just most women just see that there's a problem um, amongst the people that identify as transgender that are males. There's, there's, there's an issue there and we've identified it and we've talked about how um, predatory men are using, using this as like a way to gain access to women and to children's spaces. And I think that's all pretty clear. Um, even women that don't admit it, I think that even they see that there's something to be concerned about there. Um, but yeah, I, I really want to talk about female transgenderism because it's just, it's something that I personally haven't spoken about a lot. And I think it opens up new doors, you know, when thinking about why is this going on? So um, you had asked me what my thoughts were, experiences of like trans men who are living happily as men. And I just, I have to say my first thought, my response to that is just, I don't believe that the condition of being at perpetual war with one's own body is compatible with any, you know, any idea of self-acceptance. A female just can't become a male. And if a woman spends all her time or like a young girl spends all her time and energy in pursuit of this impossible objective, you know, trying to transform into a man and obsesses over her body and altering it. And, you know, just like every little thing about her body needs to be altered to try to resemble a man. Well, then she's not accepting the material reality of her own body. And if we don't accept our bodies, then how can we be happy? You know, I mean, happiness, like what is that in the days of what we're living through now? But um, yeah, just this idea of even like living like a man, what the heck does that mean? You know, I think that we need to think about what we're communicating, especially to vulnerable children, especially girl children, when we even insinuate that it's possible for anyone to like live as a man, if you're not a man, or, or to live as a woman, if you're not a woman, a man is a man, a male is a male regardless if he fits the stereotypical expectations of the male sex role. And just like a boy is a boy child, even if he doesn't like to play with other boys or acts, you know, like if he likes glitter and sparkly toys or whatever it is that they've deemed too feminine, it doesn't matter. He's still a boy. So this whole transgender ideology is just like teaching kids that it's possible for there to be something just like intrinsically, mentally, emotionally, physically wrong with their body, wrong with your female body, you know? And if you're a female, you don't comfortably fit into the constricting box of imposed sex role stereotypes. Like like this, this whole thinking is diabolical to, to teach girls that there's something wrong with their bodies. 
And it just like reinforces the idea that to be like a normal woman or a proper woman or correct woman, a cis woman, if you will, in order to be that, like you have to be an obedient and like willingly conforming to these sexist ideas of what it means to be a woman. So I think we really have to look at the driving factors behind like what, what all is going on that's making, that's like pushing young females and not just young ones, but particularly young women to take on these transgender identities. That includes the fact that female people have been and are being severely limited in our ability to move freely in the world and express ourselves freely. And obviously even more so now. But yeah, even though like the delineations of what is and isn't feminine behavior are different from culture to culture, it doesn't change the fact that no matter where you go in the world, women who act outside of culturally enforced sexual stereotypes are subject to all kinds of different forms of policing and punishment for doing that. You know, for whatever their culture is, their culture has a way of penalizing them for stepping outside those prescribed like feminine behaviors and transgenderism. It just provides this sort of like an out of girlhood, you know, suddenly instead of being trapped in the confines of femininity and what it means to live in a female sex body, there's like this whole other option that becomes available to a girl, but only if she starts to see herself as a boy you know, I'm like, what the hell, what does that say about what it means to be a girl in this world or like what it means to be a boy? I think we can't talk about why girls want so badly and like need to escape and flee their female bodies unless we're talking about the fact that we're living within the confines of just like a completely hypersexualized, pornified culture. Yeah, you know, I think that young females are being driven um, towards identification with ideology of transgenderism, and it's totally rooted in hypersexualization of girls and this intentionally porn-saturated environment. And, and we're I, supposed I to pretend to... that they're not related. Yes, and people pretend they're not related, right. So I have a couple of um, documentaries on my YouTube as well about pornography. I have the more recent one, it's Group Psychology and Pornography, The Next Generation. And then I have an older one called Rewired, How Porn Trains the Brain. So I definitely suggest any women that are interested in unpacking more about pornography, check out those videos, some good starting places. And then also Gail Dines. I was exposed to some of her work early on too, when I was kind of like coming out of the whole like leftist organizing spaces and questioning a lot of the crap that I had believed um, or just like thinking about things that I hadn't allowed myself to think about. When I was critiquing porn a little bit amongst my old friends, like I got flack for that right away as well, like immediately. And I was like, oh, okay, I can't talk about that either. Like, but this is clearly a problem. <laughs> You know, so anyways, Gail Dine, she's written and spoken a lot about how we live in a pornified society and we're just like totally enmeshed in this like physical and now digital world of just like images and depictions of all these, you know, hypersexualized ideas of what it means to be a woman or a girl or like what you should look like, what you should do, how you should behave and act. And all these images are shaping popular culture and they're feeding the demand for sex trafficking. 
you know, and the images are just like so pervasive that I think we've just trained ourselves to like block out these dehumanizing images. Like I know that I have, I mean, there's like a few websites that I use frequently when I'm like trying to download um, different videos and stuff to use in my videos, to use clips from. And they always have just like tons of um, advertisements just all around the sides of the webpage that are just so disgusting and degrading. And like, I just don't even see them anymore, you know, because my, my brain just kind of like tunes it out because I know they're there and they're so gross. And that's the type of stuff that's like desensitizing us, you know, and really, I think most people don't realize how much pornified imagery is really coming at us until, you know, we really stop and think about and reflect on it. And yeah, it's it's really scary. The the mass media is just like flooded with all these images and the way that girls are viewed and portrayed, they're treated as objects. And I remember being objectified and treated like an I mean, not that I, it doesn't happen to me now, but I remember that as a like growing teenager, like how uncomfortable that was. I even remember as a child being, you know, treated as a sex object. And this this objectification, it's seriously psychologically damaging. It is so harmful. It was harmful to me. It changed my life for the worse. <laughs> you know, I feel like I lost years of my life because of the type of shit that I was being influenced by and like how I was seeing myself and how I, I was treating myself and like allowing others to treat me and yeah, it's just, it's everywhere, the sexualization, and it just creates this whole environment where girls feel pressured to be more sexually attractive all the time. Like I used to, like, I don't really care about that type of stuff much anymore, but I definitely remember, you know, I used to wear like tighter clothing and post sexy images and stuff. And I think that the, the young girls are really being encouraged to do that type of stuff, whether, but they don't realize it. You know, if you ask them like, oh, are you being encouraged to do this stuff? They might say, no, no, they're not. They're choosing to do it. Right. But like all, it's all this imagery and all these ideas that just create this environment where they're just pressured into wearing tighter clothing, showing more skin, you know, using more makeup. Like the makeup culture is crazy these days. I mean, I remember makeup being a thing when I was younger, but nothing like it is now. We're being trained to see our own bodies as objects. Young girls are, and I can see that. I see that in the way that they're making themselves look online when when they're getting ready for their selfies and stuff, you know? Like, they clearly think that their body is something that needs to be constantly, like, acted on and, like, manipulated in some way to like, you know, whether it's like, oh, your eyebrows, your eyebrows like suck. Like you need better eyebrows. You need longer nails or like your nails aren't done or your sm your skin. It's like, oh, you don't have too many pores, whatever. It's like us older women, like we understand that that's all part of the pressure to fit into these societally imposed standards of femininity. But I don't think a lot of these young girls realize that that's what, that's what that is, you know? I don't think most... Older women. I don't know what you mean by old. Do you mean old, old, older, older than thirty? <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> I yes. wouldn't quite call you a crone. Um, no, no, yet. no, no. I, older than the you women. mean like than pre pubescent, pubescent, adolescent. Yes. 
And because yeah. sadly, like, it's very obvious when we look at, you know, pornography and stuff, like the trend is younger and younger and younger right. girls. The accounts on Instagram, the yoga accounts that have thousands and thousands and thousands of followers are the accounts where the women are pornifying their bodies. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not about yoga. Right. I don't click an image <laughs> because I want to see the pose, it, it, it lures me in. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not even someone who's attracted to women. And yet I click on the images where it looks like she's naked, mm-hmm. right? You know how they, they, they do the, um, the freeze frames are so divisive yes. um, to, to bring the viewer in. And it, it even happened without like the makeup industry or the clothes or the glitz or the glamour, like there's this whole natural movement that's all about body positivity and like health mm-hmm. and well-being that has also been completely pornified. And like that distinction, when you see an account that has that many followers, like it is probably because I mean, I'm going to say it, you're, it's not the 99% sure those, all of those accounts have that kind of following because it's almost exclusively naked women in contorted positions. Right. And so, right. That's not inherently like a woman's naked body isn't inherently porny, but it takes off in that, in that um, sphere because that's what gets clicks. That's how we're, 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 you know, if we've been exposed to porn, that's how, we're wired to look at the perverse, to look at the thing that we're not supposed to look at. And that's, that's the kind of imagery that I've been coming across. Like, and just, yeah, so many feelings about that. Yeah, it's everywhere. It's totally everywhere. And like, I don't know, I talked about this a little bit in um, my video. It's called The Truth About Sex Robots, The Dystopian Reality of the War on Women. And Actually, that video got taken down by YouTube because, you know, it's also hate speech because <laughs> anything that talks about what's happening to women is hate speech. But yeah, like in that video, I kind of show how the men in the sex tech industries have this like s- super internalized um, these misogynistic views about women. It's just so obvious when you're looking at men that are making replicas of women's bodies specifically so that they can like hump them and rape them and do whatever perverse things they want to do. It's so obvious that there's objectification going on, that this comes from this whole objectification of women. And, you know, men are trained to see female bodies as tools and objects that can be turned into commodities and used for free labor and sexual gratification. And like, and that's not just like, oh, some feminazi talking point. Like that's a fact. (laughs) it's been proven over and over again in studies. And in that video, I show some of the studies and it's, it's happening very efficiently now with the weaponization and proliferation of pornography. And it's just, it's pervasive reach throughout the world. And it's depicting all these extreme acts of torture and sexual violence against women and girls and saying that that's normal, you know? And then it's like, of course, these men are now like creating robots and stuff that are designed to look like us, but have no agency of their own and no ability to resist or say no. You know, if they're like repeatedly doing certain acts and thinking of these replicas of our bodies in this way, 
then, you know, what does that say about how they're going to treat an actual woman that they come in contact with? And even worse yet is the child sex dolls and child sex, sex robots. Like that's a whole other world as well, which I show a little bit of that in the video. And I definitely think that just making things like that sends the message that a little girl's body is something that can be used by an adult man for sexual pleasure. And it's just, there's all these studies and they've repeatedly shown that exposure to sexualization and objectification, it just results in a really high correlation of poor mental health for young girls, you know, and, it gives, and just us, it gives us poor mental health as well, seeing this type of stuff. Yeah. It's fucked for everyone. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, mostly for women and girls, but it's it's really terrible. But like these young girls, you know, these like 14 year old girls, 13, yeah. 14, 15. I'm thinking of that age range because I remember myself back then, you know, and just thinking about what I thought about the media that I was seeing and what I thought that meant about myself and how I was supposed to be. And like, God, it's so much worse now. I feel so bad for these girls. They're just they're being taught that they're not a whole person. You know, they're an ornament and they're a tool. And that's how the mass media, that's what the propaganda says about us. And it's the the result of that is these girls are, you know, they become vulnerable to manipulation and mental, emotional, physical, sexual abuse. And it happened to me. That type of media groomed me to become vulnerable to abuse. It did. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support my work, Please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To stay in the loop for my latest coaching programs, hypnosis sessions, free resource guides, and more, follow me on Instagram at whosebodyisit and visit my website, whosebodyisit.com.